Right, let's take our Bibles tonight, if you would please, and if you'll open them to Revelation chapter 7. Seventh chapter of Revelation. The last time that I spoke on this chapter was two weeks ago. And at that time I remarked that this is one of the most remarkable passages of Scripture that we have in the Bible. And I said that because in the beginning of chapter 7 we find a centuries-old prophecy concerning Israel that's fulfilled. Uh, since the time that Jesus came into the world almost 2,000 years ago, uh, God's chosen nation of Israel has been in rebellion against him. Very few Jews have trusted Christ as the Savior. In the book of John, uh, John is speaking about the incarnation of Christ, and he says in John chapter 1, verse 11, He came into his own, and his own received him not. And that's probably the saddest commentary that you could read in the Bible concerning the coming of Christ. He came to his own people. He came to them with salvation. His beloved Jewish nation, and yet the people rejected him. They scorned him. They turned against him. They hated him. And, of course, finally, they crucified him. And because of that persistent rejection, God turned his attention to the Gentiles. Now, for a time, after Jesus was crucified, the apostles worked among the Jews, and there were many converts that were won. In those first few years, as you read the book of Acts, you find that thousands of Jews did trust Christ at that time. But it wasn't long before that revival was over, and by and large, the Jews began to reject the gospel. And we come to Acts chapter 10, and there we find the story of how Peter went and preached to the Gentile Cornelius. And he believed the gospel, and... At that time, for the first time, salvation was opened up on a large scale to Gentile people. But since that time, uh, Jews have still remained in persistent unbelief. And Paul, who is an apostle to the Gentiles, would try many different times as he went on his missionary journeys. He would first of all speak to the Jews. He, it was his custom to go in the synagogues to preach. But each time that he did, he found very few of them that would, trust, that would really trust Christ. And so true to the pattern, each time that Paul went to different places, the Jews rejected the gospel. But what we find here in this chapter, chapter 7, is that God has not rejected the Jews. I mean, even though that they turned against him and they crucified Christ and uh, all the rejection that was present at the time when Christ first came into the world, yet God has not abandoned Israel because of their disbelief. Because we read in this chapter that there is a time coming when many Jews will be turned to the Lord. In the end times, there will be 144,000 Jews that will be saved. Uh, the more than that, actually, but these are a special number of Jews, 12,000 that come from each of the tribes of Israel, and they will become witnesses of the gospel during the tribulation period. And under their preaching, their testimony and witness, there will be thousands, perhaps even millions upon millions of people that will be saved. Now, what God will do with those Jews is that he will protect them during the tribulation period. As hard as the Antichrist tries to destroy them and tries to stamp out their witness, yet God will protect them, they will pre be preserved alive, and they'll enter into the millennial kingdom. But the same is not true for those that they've witnessed to and have trusted Christ. Millions will be won by their witness. And in the darkest days of persecution that the world has ever seen, every born-again believer at that time will be very severely persecuted. And these tribulation saints are not like 
those 144,000 because they're not promised preservation. Instead, they will die before the tribulation period is over. They're going to be martyred for their faith. And that's what we're going to talk about in this part of the chapter. Uh, Last time we talked about the first part and those 144,000. But tonight we're going to talk about these martyred tribulation saints. So if you look in chapter 7, stand with me please as we read God's word. We'll look at verse number 9 is where we will begin. Uh, Revelation chapter 7, verse number 9. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for those who have come tonight. We pray, Lord, you'd bless this message to our hearts and help us to understand your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The first remarkable thing about this chapter is what I mentioned is that sealing of these 144,000 Jews that become witnesses of the gospel. After hundreds of years of rejection and perhaps even thousands of years depending upon when Jesus comes back again, uh, after all of these years Israel does finally turn to the Lord in belief. The second remarkable thing about the chapter is the millions that are going to be saved when Uh, This particular time is the worst persecution that's ever seen. I mean, there's been persecution upon Christian people throughout the history of the world and upon the people of God, speaking of Israel, upon them as well, uh, since the beginning of time. And the remarkable thing here is that with much persecution, yet there are thousands and millions, perhaps, people that will turn to the Lord. And we would think, why would these people believe? Why would someone trust Christ at this time when to put your faith in him will almost certainly mean certain death? Why do they receive Christ now? Well, the answer to that question is actually a testament to the working of Almighty God in salvation. And that's because when when God turns the heart of a person in belief to the Savior, and when the Holy Spirit begins to draw a person effectually... There's no power in the universe that can stop that person from being saved. The worst demon in hell is no match for the Holy Spirit when he begins to work in a person's heart. And not even the depravity of this wicked heart that we have is enough to stop us from coming to Christ. The Holy Spirit draws us effectively. And these people do believe because the Holy Spirit puts it into their heart to believe and they will come. Now, this is the future of God's plan and purpose, and it comes 
in the form of prophecy. So let's look at that first tonight, the prophecy of tribulation salvation. Probably one of the hardest uh, prophecies that we find in the Old Testament for Israel to, to really get a grip on was this fact that God had included the Gentiles in his plan and purpose. I don't think that I really need to rehearse to you the hatred that Israel had for Gentile people. Uh, we know that very well. But perhaps we see it not any more convincingly than we do in the story of Jonah. When Jonah was told to go and preach to Nineveh. And we know that story. And when Jonah finally, reluctantly, uh, surrendered to the will of God and he obeyed God, he went to the city of Nineveh and preached. And there, were, uh, there was a city there of probably 600,000 or more people that repented and they turned to the Lord and they were saved. Now, if you remember the story, Jonah was not happy about that at all. Even though he had preached and many people had turned to the Lord, Jonah wasn't happy because what God had done, he had brought Gentiles to salvation. But Jonah really only needed to look at the prophecies that were given in the Word of God to tell him that there would be many who would be brought to faith because of the witness of Israel. Now, the prophecy of salvation, then, is foretold, we find, by the Old Testament prophets. We find it in the Old Testament. In that original covenant that God made with Abraham, God told him, he said, Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. And specifically, Israel was going to come from the loins of Abraham. He was the father of the Israelite people. But God also told him something else. He said, Abraham, because of you, all nations of the world will be blessed. And when God said that, what he meant was Gentiles as well. They're going to be included. They're going to be brought in at a later time to this covenant. In the book of Psalms, we read there where, where David said that Gentiles would be saved. Isaiah wrote about it. Joel wrote about it. And so there was plenty of Old Testament prophecy concerning the salvation of Gentiles that all that Jonah needed to do, all that any Israelite needed to do, was just go to the Word of God, read the prophecy, and they would find out that God would include Gentiles. So there's no Israelite that should have missed this. But despite what was written in the Word of God, they really never took God seriously about this. So the Old Testament prophets, they foretold there will be a great gathering in of Gentiles. But then also we find that there are New Testament predictions of this. The New Testament says it as well. And the New Testament predictions come in two different classes of prophecy. Now I've labeled these in two different ways. The first one is the usual suspects. And what I mean is people that we would expect to say things about this. These are people like Peter. In his sermon on the day of Pentecost, uh, Peter went to the Old Testament and he just said, here's what this is all about. Uh, many people are going to come to the realization that Jesus is the Messiah. And he actually predicted the tribulation when he repeated the words of Joel in that sermon on the day of Pentecost. In remarking about salvation, Peter said, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that was in the context of the prophecy that Joel had made concerning tribulation time. Jesus also predicted it in Matthew 24. He said that the gospel will be preached to all nations. That didn't happen at the time of Jesus, and it hasn't happened since. The whole world has not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus was referring to was this time of tribulation when these 144,000 Jewish witnesses would take the gospel of Christ to every corner of the globe. 
And then, of course, we're reading here in the New Testament Revelation what John saw. So these are all New Testament predictions of a great gathering in of many nations to Christ. So those are the usual suspects. I mean, we expect them to say something like this. But what is a little bit surprising is that it also comes from some unusual suspects. There was a man by the name of Caiaphas who uh, was the high priest at the time that Jesus was crucified. He was a man who hated Gentiles. He hated Jesus Christ. And he could not have spoken these words that we're going to read unless God had put it in his heart to say this. This is not a self-generated prophecy. And so he said this in John chapter 11. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself. That means that this prophecy did not come from him. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but that he should gather together in one the children of God that are scattered abroad. So not just for Israel, but the children of God, those that God would save, scattered throughout all the nations among the Gentiles, these will be brought to salvation. Now that was something just totally unexpected from this hypocritical, self-serving, self-righteous Sadducee. But then we find that there's also another person who spoke under Holy Spirit inspiration, and that was Simeon. The old man in the temple that was promised that he wouldn't die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so when Jesus was brought into the temple for dedication right after his birth, eight days after his birth, Simeon took the infant child into his arms and he said, Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. So though the tribulation will be the worst time of persecution that the world has ever seen, yet a gracious God is going to use that period to bring millions to salvation. So that will be an unprecedented time of renewal, something the world has never seen before as Jews and Gentiles alike come into the fold of God. Now, let's look a little bit more closely at these people in in these verses 9 through 17. Secondly, let's talk about the people of tribulation salvation. In the first part of the chapter, there's no doubt that he's talking about Jews. Now, despite the teachings of many cults like the Jehovah Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists and the Worldwide Church of God, these are most definitely Jewish people. They come from the 12 tribes of Israel. And so I I don't think that I need to uh, spend time explaining that again. The last lesson we talked about that, there are very obvious statements here that show us this is talking about Jewish people. So John has no trouble understanding who they are. The angel very clearly tells them who they are. But notice there's a question in verse number 13. John sees all these people. There's a vast number, according to verse number 9, one that can't be numbered for multitude. And now there is a question concerning who they are. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So one of the elders asked John who they are. 
Now remember we talked about these elders uh, several weeks ago. Uh, These are people that represent the redeemed of all ages. So one of these elders asked John who they are. Now that wasn't a question to get John's opinion about it. Uh, John didn't know who they were. He wasn't expected to know who they were. He couldn't know who they were. And so this is a question that's asked not to get John's particular answer, but so the answer can be given by the elder. So who are they? Well, it seems that many people are perplexed about it. Who are these people? And if John was perplexed, then we can imagine why we're perplexed. He didn't know either. So we have to examine it a little bit. Let's see who they are. Well, first we know that they're different from the 144,000. We're not talking about the same as the 144,000. Now, how do we know that? Well, the first answer to it would seem to be obvious. The 144,000 are 144,000. I mean, that, that's a definite number. God has given a very specific number about those Jews that are going to be saved. But verse number 9 says that this number, the number of these people, is an indefinite number. There's an untold number far greater than those 144,000. So this vast number here, we can't be talking about that 144,000, but rather these are fruits of the witnesses of the 144,000. And then we also know that they're not the 144,000 because that's a group that comes from Israel. And here we say that, see that uh, this is described as being from all kindreds of all people, all nations, all tongues. That's how we know that they must be Gentiles. So they can't be the same as those 144,000. And then they're not the 144,000 because these are seen in heaven. And so what that means is that these people have died before the tribulation ended. And we know about the 144,000, they're not going to die. God's going to preserve them and they'll go into the millennial kingdom alive. So these are believers that have endured the hardship of great tribulation. They placed their faith in Christ, but they didn't survive the tribulation period. Some of them were probably killed in all those calamities that we've talked about, but it seems most likely that the the vast number of these, the greatest number of them, have been killed through persecution. They've been martyred for the cause of Christ. So who is this group? Well, we can limit it a little bit further by saying that they're different from the church. Now, one of the opinions that people have about this group is that this includes all martyrs that come from uh, all groups of believers all the way back to the time of Christ. And so anybody who died in the church age, they believe that is in this number. So when he speaks of great tribulation here, he's not speaking about a post-rapture tribulation that, that we've been teaching, but rather it's a tribulation in general, a tribulation that came during the entire period of the church age. But that doesn't seem to be plausible because of the way this question is answered. If the, these had been people who came from the church age, then John would know some of these people. He would know some of who they were because he would see some of his own converts there. He, he would notice that there were people that he had won to Christ and they are among that number. If you and I were, were there and we were standing there as well, we would probably know some of these people if they had come from the church age. You know, I've been a Christian for almost 50 years now, and I've met lots and lots and lots of Christians during my lifetime. And so if I was there, I would probably recognize them. But John recognizes nobody. There's no one there. He knows who they are. So we know that this is not people that come from the church age. And that's good news for us. Why? 
Well, because it's another way that we know that the church, those who believe in Jesus Christ right now, those who become members of the Lord's church, they're not going to go through this tribulation period. That's good news for us that John doesn't recognize who they are. Now, if these had been believers from the church age, and there's no need for a distinguishing mark to be put upon them and separate them out from other believers. And then thirdly, we know that they're neither the church, and they're not the 144,000, because these are people that are different in position. Now, let's go back and think about those 24 elders again. These elders that we saw earlier in the book of Revelation, they represent the redeemed of all ages. And so these are 24 elders that sit upon thrones. The Bible says they have crowns on their heads. And so they represent you and me that are living in the church age and then those that are saved from the Old Testament. But we see that this multitude has no thrones. There are no crowns on their heads. There are no palm, uh, they don't have that. They have palm branches in their hands. So they're described in a different way because they have a different position. These are saved people, but they don't have the same position as those that are in the church. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to the bride of Christ. But these are people that don't have the same privileges as the church because the church is the espoused wife of the Lamb. Now, all people are going to be happy in heaven. It doesn't make any difference whether you become a member of the church or not. If you're a saved person, you'll be in heaven. But those that are a part of the Lord's church have been given a greater capacity to enjoy heaven. And these people have special prominence over all others, greater prominence even than the children of Israel that were saved. The church is very special because it's called the Lamb's Bride. So if there's a lesson that we can learn from this, it would tell us that it's far better for any Christian to be a part of a New Testament church, a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, than to be in any other group, rather than being apart from the Lord's body. Now, what I believe is that there are many saved people, many Christians that are in false churches. They got saved exactly like you and I got saved. There's no difference in the way that they were saved, but they're, they've, they've become a part of false churches. And so uh, they don't enjoy all the privileges of growing and learning and just becoming closer to Christ like they could be if they were a part of a true New Testament church. So one thing that I have no problem at all doing, that's proselytizing from false churches. Now, some people don't like that. They say, well, if they're Christians, leave them alone. I mean, just leave them where they are. I don't think that's right. I think we want to get all Christians, as many as we can, to be in the place where God wants them to be in true churches of the Lord Jesus Christ because they'll enjoy greater privileges. So I don't have any problem telling people that, you know, a good place for people that are in Roner Park, for you to be a a good place for you to be a member is a member of the Berean Baptist Church. I mean, we believe we're a true, one of the Lord's true churches. And when we don't say that smugly and we don't say it conceitedly, we just want everybody to enjoy the same privileges of sitting under the truth of the preaching of God's word. Now, thirdly, from this chapter, I want us to look at the place of the tribulation saints. These are people that are in heaven. What a privilege it's going to be to be in heaven. That's the place that we're looking for. So heaven is our goal, but not just the place of heaven and the goal of being in this place called heaven, but being right in the place with the one who's waiting for us to come, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you and I that are believers, we're going to be there. But those also who go through this great tribulation and they trust Christ at this this time, they're going to be there as well. 
And it's a welcome relief for them to be delivered out of persecution. Now, let's notice some things uh, that we see here about these people that are in heaven, something about their character and something about heaven itself. Uh, First of all, it's a place for the cleansed. Verse number 14 says, They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Ever wondered about that? How can you wash something in blood and have it come out white? You know, sometimes when I'm getting ready for church on Sunday mornings, I, uh, I'm shaving and I maybe nick my neck just a little bit, put on my white shirt, and I don't realize that I've done that. And I get to church, and there's a little blood speck. Now, that might be distasteful for some of you, but there's a little blood speck or something on my white shirt. And I always wonder, well, how am I going to wash something in blood and have it come out white? Well, that's a wonderful aspect of the blood of Jesus Christ. Because once we are plunged under his blood, once we've been washed by his blood, we come out as white as snow. There's an amazing power in the blood of Jesus. And so when you come to him with a heart that's blackened by sin, he just takes those sins, he takes you, he plunges you under his blood, and you come out as white as snow. Isaiah wrote, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Now there, of course, Isaiah is not referring to the blackness of sin, but rather he's speaking about the deepest dying of the soul. Now, and what I'm talking about there is like when you take a garment and you put it into a dye. The dye changes the color. The dye permeates the thread, becomes permanent. So the next time that you wash it, the dye doesn't wash away. But what he's speaking about here is that when we're put under the blood of Jesus Christ, he comes and he cleanses every fiber of our being. He changes that stain of sin that's deep into our souls, and he takes that away from us, and he makes us pure and white as wool. So heaven is a place for the cleansed. Nothing is ever going to enter into heaven that is defiled. Heaven is a place for the redeemed. That means that those who have placed their faith in Christ, they'll be there because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way that you get to heaven. So the Bible is very explicit about who is going to be in heaven. But you know... There are many people who say, well, you're just too narrow. You're too exclusive to talk about heaven in this way. Well, the Bible rules out anybody being in heaven that has not been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we learn here that it's a place for worship. Heaven is a place for worship. Look at verse 11. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. A few weeks ago, I was asked in Sunday morning forum class, Why did God create man? And sometimes I really wonder about that. I mean, I wonder sometimes why he created some of you, and I'm perplexed by that. But the only reason, really, why we would be perplexed by that question, why did God create man, is when we consider the issue of sin. Why did God create man so that he could sin? Well, I'm not going to go into that question tonight except to say this. I do know that God works out all things for his glory. He created us to worship him. 
The Westminster Catechism says in its very first question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer to the question, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now that means that we have to worship God, and in order for us to enjoy him forever, then we're going to have to be in the place where God is. Now that's a wonderful thing about heaven too. It's a place of the presence of God. Heaven is a place where God is. And we're going to glorify him forever through our worship. So that's what's consuming this multitude of angels and men that are in heaven. They are continually worshiping God. A third thing we see about heaven is that it's a place of service. The scripture says here that, or it does say that we'll rest from our labor. But it also says that that heaven is a place of service. Now I think that that tells us that service to God is not burdensome. God can make us supremely happy in our service. Now, look at verse 15. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. And we notice there that it says that we'll serve him day and night. Now, that doesn't mean that there's going to be day and night in heaven because the sun is no longer going to rule the day. And the Bible says that Jesus Christ himself is the light of that city. But this is an expression, day and night, is simply an expression that means all the time, continually, we're going to serve God. We're never going to stop serving God. Now, that's bad news for some Christians. It's bad news because some Christians have never started serving God. They're still not serving God, much less think about stop serving. But it's also bad news in one way for Christians that have stopped serving. You know, there's some people who think that service to God has a time limit on it, that you can reach a retirement age in the servants of God. And so you serve him for a few years, you put in your time, and you sit down and you let somebody else do it. The Bible does not give us a retirement age for our service. Now, one thing that's definitely true is that, uh, you know, there are preachers that get old and retire, but that doesn't mean that they stop serving. It just means that their service changes to other avenues. My dad, when, when he was pastoring, his health got bad, and he had to retire from pastoring, but he never stopped preaching. And whenever he was able, when his health would allow him, he would just serve God in a different way. He would go to different places, and he would preach or preach in the church that he was a member of at that time. So it's good that attitudes have been changed when we get to heaven because there are many Christians who would be extremely uncomfortable there when you talk about serving God all the time. So you're not going to find any couch potatoes in heaven. Everybody's going to serve God. Now, the fourth thing that we learn here about heaven is that it's a place of protection. The last part of verse number 15 says, And he that sitteth upon the throne shall dwell among them. Now, I, I love this reference to the word dwell. And you'll recognize it when I talk about it. If you were here in our uh, study of the Gospel of John, you'll understand this because that word dwell is exactly the same word as tabernacle. John wrote in John chapter 1, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That word dwell in that verse is tabernacle. God dwelt, Jesus dwelt among us. And that actually means that Jesus pitched his tent among us. He came to live with us and God was present with us. Now when we get to heaven, God is going to be with us. And although he is the mighty God, 
He's the God that rules over all, yet he's not a God that is unapproachable. He's a God that invites us to come to him. The Bible says he's not ashamed to call us his brethren. And so we'll live with him and we'll enjoy his presence forever. God will dwell with us. And when God is present with us, that means that there's never an enemy that can harm us. He protects us. He takes care of us. And how assuring that's going to be for these saints that come out of that tribulation time. Here are people that were tortured, uh, shamefully treated. They were humiliated. They were killed. But now in heaven, they're safe and secure. And so there's that eternal protection that's afforded us when we get to heaven. All of us are placed under the sheltering wings of the Savior. And then fifthly, heaven is also a place of provision. There are no unsatisfied needs when we get to heaven. Look at verse 16. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. Now I want to quote something to you from W.A. Criswell. He writes on this verse. And he says, the next description is, they shall hunger no more, they shall thirst no more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. These negatives are often used in Revelation. In the 21st chapter, where heaven is described, there's an abundance of negatives. The Greeks, as they wrote things, had an emphatic way of putting them down. In English, double negatives mutually eliminate each other. If you say, don't not, then you actually do. That's English. But in the Greek, the more negatives that are piled on, the more emphatic the meaning. We get the meaning even in English when we do that. If someone said to you, I don't know nothing, know-how, you would get the idea that they did not know anything. If a man comes up to you and asks for a job, saying, you don't know nobody nowhere, wants nobody to work for him, don't you? You know that he's asking for a job. But that is good Greek. It may be bad English, but it's marvelous Greek. That's what God says here. He just piles up the negatives. No, not, neither, nor, adding one to another as he describes God's separate remembrance and provision for his people. Now here's what we see that all of these things that characterize their lives upon the earth, those things can no longer harm them. Not the calamities that we spoke about or the natural disasters, not forced starvation that comes upon them because they would not take the mark of the beast, none of that can affect them any longer because heaven is their place of provision. And then finally, heaven is also a place of comfort. Verse 17 says, For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. All of us know that this world, this earth is a place of sorrow and crying. I don't think that we can even imagine what these tribulation saints are going will go through. Women will have their babies torn out of their arms and killed without mercy. Husband and wives will be separated from one another and then that husband or wife killed right in the sight of the one that they loved. It's going to be a terrible time. A few years ago, we visited the uh, Nazi death camp in Dachau, Germany. And, and there we saw all of the gas chambers. We visited the Holocaust Museum when we were in Israel last year. And room after room, you would find films, you would find artifacts, and all different kinds of things of the, of the genocide that was, uh, that was uh, perpetrated against the Jews. But you take that, 
and you multiply it 10 times by 10 times and then even 100 times and you won't come up with a fair comparison of the way it's going to be during the tribulation. But the thing about it is, it will end. It's not going to last forever. It will end. And for those that are martyred, the only thing that they could ever do to them was to kill the body. They couldn't kill the soul. The soul is going to take its rest in heaven, and there it will be comforted from all of its trials. So that's what heaven's going to be like. And I think what we need to do is we need to get a vision of all these horrors that are in the tribulation and at the same time catch that vision of the majesty of heaven. And then when we've done that, then we need to be like these 144,000 in the first part of this chapter, that we go and we tell all nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues we are responsible for getting the gospel out, whether it's our personal witness or whether it's through tithes and offerings to send missionaries. That's the job that God has given us to do, to declare to the world today, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. That's what God has given us to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we've been able to spend together tonight. We thank you for your word and what marvelous prophecy, the fulfillment of prophecy that we see here. God, you're always true to your promises. We're looking forward to the day when Jesus comes again. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to go through that tribulation period. We trust you now. We'll not be a part of that. But we will be there with all these saints that trust you around the throne of God, singing and praising and serving night and day, continually, continually, forever and ever. And we thank you, Lord, that you've saved our souls. Speak to our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's